0: Diplomatic trafficking and a class of work visas issued by the U.S. State Department is the subject of a new investigative report by journalist Noi Thrupkow. I'm Lori messing McGarry, and this is Real Fiction, a production of Real Fiction Media Group. On Real Fiction, I speak with journalists, writers, and changemakers to discuss the real and imaginary forces that fuel stories, reportage, and social impact. We cover media transparency and the evolving industry of journalism. All Real Fiction conversations are available wherever you get your podcasts and on realfictionradio.com. I'll be back in a moment with today's guest. My guest today is Noi Thropkow. She is an independent journalist who has researched human trafficking and labor exploitation since 2006. She is a senior fellow at the University of Southern California's Annenberg Innovation Lab and the interim director of the Ida B. Wells Fellowship Program. In 2015, she gave a TED Talk on human trafficking, which has more than 2 million views. She has reported from Asia, the Middle East, North Africa, and Cuba, and has written for national and international outlets, including her most recent investigative work published in the Washington Post magazine in October. It was the cover story titled, Sri Yatun's Escape, this was a years-long investigation supported by the Fund for Investigative Journalism. Joining me from Los Angeles to discuss this astonishing reportage is Noi Thrupkow. Noi, welcome to Real Fiction. Wow, thank you so much, Lori. It's so nice to be here with you. So in an investigative piece published in the Washington Post magazine, you wrote about a young woman, her name was Sri. Yatun. She's from a village in Indonesia who came to the United States on a special category of a diplomatic visa. And during her employment in the U.S., she suffered abuse from her employer, who was a diplomat from Indonesia. Now, first, I have never before heard the term diplomatic trafficking, and I was unaware of something called the A3 visa, which is uh, the focus uh, of your investigation. What can you tell us about the category of visa that brought Sri Yatun to the United States?
1: Yeah, so actually the A3 visa is not a diplomatic visa. It's a work visa that is given to the domestic workers who are employed by diplomats. So that's ambassadors, consular officials, and other people who are part of foreign missions here in the United States. There's also a G5 visa, which is given to domestic workers who are employed by international organization officials. So people who work at the International Monetary Fund or the World Bank. So this is a really interesting and complicated visa. Um, Of course, there are many domestic workers who have had really wonderful, respectful relationships with their diplomat employers. And there are others who have not experienced that. And part of that is the structure of the visa itself. So this is a visa that essentially ties the domestic worker to the singular employer. So if that employer fires them or dismisses them, then that domestic worker falls out of legal status and so is no longer um, eligible to live and work in the United States. So that creates a degree of uh, power imbalance that you also see in other forms of uh, work visas, like temporary guest work visas, like the H-2A visa or... um, other visas of that kind of category.
0: This A3 visa, which is focused on domestic labor, is the visa that Sri Yatun came into the United States. She she used that visa to enter with her employer. Now, we learned that her passport and visa papers were hidden from her while she was working. And you touched upon this a moment ago, that there is an inherent power balance between employer and employee. What can you tell us about um, meeting Sri Yatun? What was she promised when accepting this position? In general, what are these, uh, th- the workers promised when they're coming into the United States on these uh, with these diplomatic families?
1: So I was able to meet Sri Yatun through a wonderful anti-trafficking advocate named Ima Matul, who used to work at a Los Angeles-based organization called the Coalition Against Slavery and Trafficking. It had actually been a really long struggle to find someone who would speak to me on the record and also allow me to name and speak to his or her employer. Um, I had never had this degree of trouble before, actually. But I was—I had started this project during the Trump administration, and people had become. Um, Very worried about the possibility of antagonizing the U.S. government. They were worried about jeopardizing their potential visa status. And there was also a memo put out at that time during the Trump administration's time in office that basically said that if you applied for a T visa, which is a special visa granted to victims of human trafficking who collaborate, who cooperate with law enforcement, that If you applied for that T visa and you did not get it, you could be put in removal proceedings and a removal hearing. So that made people extremely apprehensive about possibly offending the U.S. government, attracting the wrong kind of attention, and then having their process, visa process, or citizenship process reversed. So that was a huge challenge. And also, it's a pretty high bar. Uh, Not a lot of people feel comfortable having their name attached to an account of their really difficult time in life. Um, A lot of people don't feel comfortable with my speaking to their prior employer. So that was a challenge. But Ima herself um, is a remarkable person who was a domestic worker from Indonesia, and she herself was trafficked to the United States. So she worked um, in survivor advocacy and leadership
0: building, and she helped connect me to Sri. Sri had hopes and dreams when she was coming to United States. She thought this was a wonderful opportunity. Um, when her employer initially approached her about coming here, what kind of opportunities did she think were awaiting her?
1: Well, I think you know, for Sri, a lot of people. Um, I think most people migrate um, because they're poor. I mean, it's as simple as that. They seek more financial stability. They are looking for the opportunities to be able to support their family and um, gain a little bit more stability in their family's lives and in their communities. So Sri understood that she would... There were certain uh, contractual obligations that that her employer had to her. She re-signed a contract that promised her $400 a week for 40 hours of work and then also promised that she would get $13 an hour for overtime. Um, You know, she'd have days off.
0: And this was all put in writing for oh, yes. Sri before she departed Indonesia. This was laid out in paper and for her to read in her native yes. language. Yes. It and, was
1: it was in Bahasa, Indonesia, and so she was able to read it and sign it. So these this was the promise that she was made, but the thing that actually made things very um intriguing and enticing for her was she was promised the opportunity to go to school. And she had only been able to go to school for about six years in Indonesia. Um, and she loved school so much um, and really wanted a chance to continue that.
0: And it was very much the uh, the job of caring for the family, uh, cooking, cleaning within the home. Her story is heartbreaking. It's um, horrifying to to read about just the sense that she was trapped in this house with her visa and, pa- and passport um, hidden from her. Um, and then I thought about the sort of broader trafficking concept. And this is something that you have been writing about since 2006, because I think that many people still believe that human trafficking mostly involves girls that are immediately sold into prostitution rings. But this is not the reality. Um, so just in a broader sense, what do you think most people miss or don't understand about the scale of trafficking?
1: Yeah, that's a great question, Laurie. I mean, definitely there is trafficking for the purposes of forced prostitution. That is a real problem. It's a terrible problem, but it does seem to command a disproportionate share of media and public attention. I think for some very specific reasons. Um, one is, you know, Actually, a huge proportion of forced labor and human trafficking is for the purposes of non-sexual labor. So things like construction, manufacturing, agriculture, domestic work. And these are all things that touch and concern every single one of us. People are trafficked to pick cotton, to um, harvest coffee to pick cocoa beans um, to mine for cobalt and coltan sorry, to mine coltan, which is an ingredient that's used in cell phone batteries. Um, palm oil has some very exploitative labor practices that do rise to the level of human trafficking inside of that sector. Fishing, shrimp, um, some of these are sectors that have seen quite a lot of human trafficking. And I want to make it clear that, you know, work is kind of done on a spectrum of exploitation and coercion. One can interpret it that way, right? And human trafficking is, you know, really one of the most severe forms of exploitation that you can experience in a labor context. You know, this is part of a larger system of weak enforcement and an attack on workers' rights to organize and actually defend their rights to dignified life. And so this is not something that we can extricate from larger labor issues that we are talking about all over the world these days. So I think that's maybe one issue is, you know, people don't really maybe want to talk about the exploitation that can live inside of capitalism. They also don't want to think about and be belabored with the thought of whose hands are picking this fruit that I'm eating and, you know, who is who built this building that I'm, you know, housed in? Um, who are the people who clean these buildings? Who are the people who take care of children? Like, these are absolutely some of the most essential functions of human life. And they can be done by people who face severe labor exploitation because we have not seen fit to offer them the kind of labor protections that they deserve.
0: I want to remind listeners that my guest today is Noi Thrupkow. She authored an incredible piece of reportage in the Washington Post magazine. It's titled Sri Yatun's Escape. When I read this piece, uh, I was so shocked, again, circling back to the term that you use, diplomatic trafficking. It was particularly dispiriting to read about, and and you have a quote, esteemed diplomats, some of whom speak out against human rights abuses publicly while exploiting workers in private. When you were researching this piece, what shocked you the most?
1: This is kind of a horrible thing to say, Lori, but I wasn't really shocked by any of it. Um, Mm. I maybe was disgusted. I was horrified. I was enraged. But I mean, I don't know that any of it was particularly shocking because I've been researching this for a while and the kind of cruelty that people can exhibit towards people who do some of the most valuable work that can be done, right, is I've seen this over and over again. I've seen the kind of incredibly ingenious and very um, insidious schemes employed to um, defraud people, to lie to them, to to coerce them in in various ways. But there were several cases, I guess, that stood out to me. There's one case where um, a, a young Person was brought over to work as a domestic worker for a diplomat or a consul, um, or an international organization official. I don't quite remember which one, and she was 14 at the time. So there was visa fraud involved in that um, application because you, you're supposed to be 18 <laughs> in order to get an e 3 okay. or G5 visa. So mm. she was 14, so that was visa fraud right from the very beginning of a particular ilk. And then she wound up having to work for that employer for 19 years. That is just a huge proportion of that, like more than half of her life. There was another worker who was a professional chef at a hotel and made delicious food for a wedding reception. The diplomat was so taken with his meal that he offered the man a job on the spot and then subjected him to incredibly harsh and severe living conditions. He was denied food. He had to find a refrigerator on the street, bring it home. He had to hang bread from a hook on the ceiling to avoid having the food eaten by rats and vermin. This is a professional chef who evidently has an exquisite way with food and then is subjected to eating, you know, moldy bread that he's trying to keep away from rats. I mean this this is stuff that you can't even make up. So it's things like that that are, are so disturbing to read. It's just the, the kind of degrees of cruelty that, that people can act upon towards people who are doing the work of caring for them, for caring for their children, for cleaning their homes, for cooking their food, literally sustaining their lives. And this
0: is how they choose to treat them. And again, you've researched hundreds of these cases and you write something in the article. You write that the US State Department website proclaims that it leads the US global engagement to combat human trafficking. How do you feel the US government is doing in this space?
1: Um, It's very interesting. The US government, the State Department also publishes an annual report basically ranking countries' efforts on anti-trafficking issues, including our own. And based on the ranking, they can also issue restrictions on financial aid, which they have done. So if a country is not passing muster in terms of its anti-trafficking initiatives, then they can (laughs) be subject to restrictions on financial aid. So this is something that is not only rhetoric, it's also reality in terms of uh the State Department's policing of these matters. In terms of how the U.S. is doing on this, um, there have been a lot of improvements, especially since 2008, in response to literally decades of activism on the part of human rights lawyers, domestic worker organizing groups, um, human rights groups of all kinds. There's been a very concerted movement to kind of keep engaging the U.S. government on this. And as a result, um, the State Department did put in place a number of protections. In 2008, there, you know, Congress basically um, mandated that there would have to be a required work contract that A3 and G5 workers could sign, that they would receive a Know Your Rights pamphlet that would basically indicate various indices for whether they were facing an exploitative labor situation or not, and then who to call. It also, importantly, granted domestic workers who chose to file lawsuits against their employers the ability to live and work legally in the States. And then they also started to ask that a diplomat's employer basically sign off on any special visa request. So that allowed them to kind of vet and check the diplomat to make sure there were not any other allegations of abuse against him or her. And then... When was that put into place? These were were all um, actually, the changes started to get put in place after 2008. There's a whole, it was like 2008 and there was some done in 2015. Um, So there was a a series of changes after that. And then they tried to do a check-in process also. So workers who were living in DC or in New York or Houston could come in and meet state department officials, you know, soon after they arrived and then go over their legal work, legal rights and their work requirements. So they did try to implement certain, um, you know, things, policies to protect workers um, after 2008 or so. And then there's a number of kind of, that's like the preventative side, right? And then we have the side of what happens after there might be abuse. That's another issue entirely, but that's what they've kind of put into place to, to try and protect workers in the first place
0: now as you were researching this story would uh, sri yatun would she have had um access to that kind of um pamphlet that says here are my rights or did that um did her arrival precede the this measure that was put in place that you just described
1: yes she arrived about 4 years before any of that actually happened unfortunately but the thing okay. that is important to consider is you know the pamphlet has been helpful to a number of domestic workers. Um, I built a whole database and I went through all these legal uh, complaints that I found um, and then also looked at uh, a series of allegations. And so the methodology is all in the article. But um, at times, you know, the check in process, for example, Um, it can be quite complicated. Um, You know, the domestic worker comes into the State Department and then the translator sometimes is on the phone, right? And like, Mm. they don't, they feel domestic workers have told me they felt very intimidated by being in the State Department or meeting with this official. People have said it would be so much more helpful if there was like domestic worker advocates there or human rights lawyers, like somebody that we knew was like really, you know, for standing by us in that way. And um, a number of domestic workers, it was reported to me, um, have felt like they could not be truthful about conditions that they were going through in terms of their employment. So their employers had kind of told them not to tell the truth or had threatened them in some way. Um, So some of these safeguards are kind of being gotten around by um, unscrupulous employers, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, it's an intimidating process to think about, particularly when you've been held in a house and told not to speak. Um, did you, do you have a sense, Noi, of what is, the, what is the threshold for action um, at the State Department or uh, a relevant agency? What do they need to see before actual action is taken? And, and I'm also curious about Indonesia in particular, since it's highlighted in the story. Um, have they been held to account for any of these um, abuses um, by some of their diplomats?
1: So the threshold is, I mean, an allegation will come in. Usually, um, you know, a domestic worker might call the hotline, but more often... It's uh, they get connected to an advocacy group like Damayan, who works with largely workers from the Philippines, Adikar, um, Indian and Nepali workers. Um, the National Domestic Workers Alliance has many different member organizations. And so the advocate or the anti trafficking organization will help that domestic worker connect to the State Department. Unfortunately, this is where things get really complicated because of the problem, potential problem of diplomatic immunity. There are three things that the State Department could do if there is a an allegation that kind of merits going forward. One is they could help the domestic worker uh, request an ex gratia payment, a payment from the diplomat's country. Um, Mm -hmm. That is not an admission of legal liability, but then that worker would be given the wages that they are owed and maybe perhaps a little bit more for the circumstances that they might've been through. There's also um, this, you know, if a law enforcement agency has decided that a case kind of merits prosecution, which is actually a quite high bar. It's a very, these cases are quite difficult. Um, We're talking about more, most often single victim um, cases where the worker is inside the home isolated, there might be very little in terms of corroboration. So it's a high bar for a prosecuting agency to go after. And especially, I will say that our law enforcement agencies don't have the best record of pursuing forced non-sexual labor cases. Um, Most prosecutions conducted in the United States are for forced prostitution, not for forced non-sexual labor, especially things like domestic work, where there might be few corroborating witnesses. Mm -hmm. So if that bar is met, then uh, they'll tell the State Department that if it weren't for diplomatic immunity, that they would pursue prosecution. And then the State Department can then request a waiver of diplomatic immunity from the diplomats host country. Um, and if that happens, then prosecution can proceed forward, but that is so very, very, very infrequent. I found twelve federal criminal cases and one state case since mm. two thousand. and like literally, there are more than a hundred allegations and civil cases that I have um, documented. So this is not a great proportion. and then, The third option is the State Department can actually cut off access to these A3 or G5 visas um, to any country that has tolerated abuse of domestic workers. Um, And one of the thresholds for that is if there is an unpaid civil judgment or default judgment against a diplomat, then that is supposed to automatically trigger the suspension of a country from accessing A3 or G5 visas in the future. But I documented... I mean, a number of cases, one, two, three, four, at least five um, countries should be suspended according to that congressional criteria, and they are just not.
0: I you know, was thinking about how individuals can really think through these issues. If somebody wants to just do something or become more aware, what do you advise people and what do the folks that you have worked with suggest?
1: I mean, it's always about foregrounding and centering the people who experience these conditions. So there are amazing organizations doing the work of promoting domestic workers' rights. The National Domestic Worker Alliance is pushing for a federal domestic workers' bill of rights, which would correct a lot of the historical wrongs that that we discussed at the beginning of our talk. There are groups like Damayan, uh, which deals with, which assists Filipino workers, Um Adhikar has done amazing work on this particular issue as well. They work with Indian and Nepali workers. And then there are places like the Human Trafficking Legal Center, which has been really at the forefront of a lot of the policy changes and legal reform. So changing a lot of the laws and allowing Congress to mandate more of the protections that you know we also discussed earlier, also pairing up Domestic workers with pro bono lawyers so that they can Mm -hmm. pursue civil cases and actually get some of that money back that they're owed and then some. The civil cases are enormously effective. Once a diplomat with even full immunity leaves his or her position, then that immunity reverts to functional immunity. So even if someone has like the full on super duper immunity package as an ambassador, once that person leaves their post, That immunity reverts to functional immunity and they can be sued. So it's a matter of patience and timing in order to be able to sue that person in civil court and possibly recoup some of the wages lost um, and, and the damages that a worker might be owed. So once that position was clarified by the State Department, the cases were enormously effective Something like I calculated in my database, something like 90% or more of the cases that were filed after that period resulted in default or um, ordered judgments or other kind of salutary outcomes for uh, domestic workers. And that was something, unfortunately, I couldn't include in my piece because a lot of the cases end in um, what's called a voluntary dismissal with prejudice by mm-hmm. the plaintiff. And that essentially means that a confidential Agreement was reached. And if you're a lawyer who's familiar with litigation, that that's usually understood as a salutary result for the plaintiff. But it is a question of whether everyone wants to do that. So, you know, filing civil suit is really, really a powerful way to um, go after what is owed um, by an employer, but it, it is not a replacement for actual oversight by the agency, by the State Department.
0: Wow, a lot of points to take in there. I have a clarifying question. Do these civil suits end in satisfying judgments when the employer has left the United States? That can be difficult.
1: Um, The process of trying to recoup the assets can be very, very difficult. But this is where the State Department can and should step in to ensure that the diplomat actually pays the judgment. And that can be done through an ex gratia payment. But this is something that the State Department has the power to do in terms of negotiating with the host country and the diplomat. And that, I think, does happen to a certain extent. It's not made public. Again, this is a lot of these issues, uh, the domestic work of visa is mini- is administered through the Office of the Chief of Protocol. And their main job is you know, to basically ensure the smooth functioning of diplomacy. This is really a fly in the ointment that you know, there, there, there can be this problem. Um, it really can be disruptive to smooth diplomatic functioning. And so they, if they do these kind of things, they don't necessarily want them to be public, which is where I would hope that lawmakers would push the State Department to make their record on this publicly clear and transparent to the rest of us who would like to know what their record is in terms of protecting domestic workers.
0: My guest today is Noi Thrupkow. She authored a piece in the Washington Post magazine titled Sri Yatun's Escape. It is an astonishing piece of reportage. And uh, Noi, on this program, I like to ask our journalist guests about um, journalism and personal safety, particularly when they're spending years on really some dangerous topics that can result in personal threats. And I know that one of the things that you've done in your career is you've taught um, a class uh, you've taught seminars and classes on transnational journalism. How do you? How do you? What are your best practices, and how do you instruct others who are engaged in years long investigative work, where quite frankly, uh, there could be legal threats and threats to personal safety? Um, that is a fantastic question, um,
1: Lori. Actually, I'm realizing that I didn't answer one of your previous questions about what. Indonesia is doing about this issue. Um, so let me address that first and then sure. do this. So um, I do know that the Indonesian government has opened up an investigation into Sri's case and are considering different measures to implement to ensure that this does not happen in the future. So I was happy to hear that. I understood that the um, article and the news in it went viral in Indonesia and that the Indonesian government responded in kind. I would hope that the U.S. State Department would also take this uh, seriously as well well and make public their record on um, this domestic worker issue. In terms of safety issues, this is not something that that I had to think about for myself. This is something I had to worry about a great deal in terms of the people who decided to speak to me on this issue. So it required a great deal of collaboration and explanation on my part to kind of um, vet and explain basically my whole process um, and to kind of uh, deal with potential fears that they might have had in terms of the Indonesian consulate because Suri actually aided another A3 domestic worker in leaving her employer. And then there was retaliation against Sri for that. So there were concerns um, on part of of some of the women, whether the Indonesian consulate here in Los Angeles would continue to retaliate against them or against their families. So this is something that we had to discuss at great length.
0: I think that's the power of a story like this. It has reached locally here and domestically here in the United States. And as you just described, it caught the attention of officials and readers in Indonesia, which is a really powerful thing to think about. And another thing that really uh, drew me to wanting to get you on the program, Noy, is that unlike some of journalists that I've had on the program, you tend to keep a very low profile on social media platforms. This is a topic that is endlessly fascinating for me and some of the listeners. That connection between journalism and a public profile, how do you think about that issue and how do you walk that line?
1: Um, I don't know that I walk it so well, Lori. I just, I know myself. um, I don't want to I know I could just procrastinate endlessly, and I don't want to give myself that temptation. Um, At the same time, there are losses, right? I I am not as hooked into the information that can be happening and the conversations. I I don't have the sense of a supportive community of other people online doing this kind of work. I definitely do miss out on quite a lot, I think, by not being more engaged in social media. But, you know, part of it is like the pr- procrastination element. Part of it is, you know, what I know about a lot of the privacy issues um, that are inherent in some of these social media platforms and the kind of really, really problematic practices they have of ensuring our um, well-being uh, and our privacy and scandalous amount of misinformation and disinformation that is disseminated on these platforms is also it's not something that I support at all. I think it's a, a little bit of a avoidance and more than anything else, I, I would love to figure out a way to engage perhaps in the future, but it's not something I have really reconciled or um, reconciled right now. I feel very contradictory about it. And as, uh, as a result, I have decided to abstain.
0: I can absolutely understand that. And it's a debate we'll continue to have on this program from time to time. What I just want to mention again is that you have illuminated a really dark angle in the visa process that the State Department is involved with a category of trafficking that I had not considered. Can you share something about what you're working on next?
1: Yes. Um, I'm doing a number of different things. Um, I'm going to be teaching a class with two wonderful professor colleagues at USC on climate stories, which I'm in the process of rapidly self-educating on climate change, which is something that uh, I've long wanted to really delve into. And then the kind of stories I have next, um, you know, I'm continuing to work as the interim director for the IW Wells Fellowship Program, which is this incredible program, basically supporting journalists of of color, investigative journalists of diverse backgrounds, and launching their first long-form investigation. And so that's been incredibly rewarding as well. Um, In terms of stories, I'm working on a piece involving farm workers next, because I, I felt like when I set out on this path of looking at domestic work. I'm going to do more domestic worker stories and certainly more on domestic workers who have been allegedly exploited by diplomat employers. There were a number of different cases and different facts that I learned late in my reporting that I wasn't able to flesh out or corroborate as fully as I might have liked, but still lingered with me. And I would like to kind of pursue those as well. I also wanted to do some work on in agricultural labor, because these are two of the sectors that were excluded from U.S. labor protections. And I think it's important to understand human trafficking as not, not through not just the criminal justice framework of an individual perpetrator doing something horrible to a victim. That's a common narrative, but there are actual systemic problems inside of labor protections, inside of our migration policies, inside of the way that people with quote-unquote vulnerabilities, um, you know, people with disabilities unhoused people, people who are undocumented, and then that leaves them open to the predations of bad actors. But it is because of flaws in our our policy that actually can provide fertile ground for that kind of thing to occur.
0: This conversation and your investigative work has been so enlightening and thought-provoking for me. Just a real education. Noi Cow, I can't thank you enough for joining Real Fiction today.
1: It has been such a pleasure talking to you, Lori. Thank you so much for having me.
0: I'm Laurie Messing-McGarry, and this is Real Fiction, a production of Real Fiction Media Group. On Real Fiction, I speak with journalists, writers, and changemakers to discuss the real and imaginary forces that fuel stories, reportage, and social impact. We cover media transparency and the evolving industry of journalism. All Real Fiction Conversations are available wherever you get your podcasts and on realfictionradio.com.